This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Well, it's very lovely to be here and uh, thank you for Diane Andy for asking me. Uh, at your rainy season retreat, and uh, Manchester is unseasonably dry today, isn't it? Like, you know, as a southerner, I'm, I'm very southern. Uh, Manchester has a reputation for being always very wet, and it's not, is it, today? So that's nice. Uh, last week I was uh, in Bristol uh, visiting them in their rainy season retreat, giving a day retreat, and it was very, very wet and very, very windy, and I had a bit of a struggle getting there on the train and back. So I feel for everyone in the floods, wherever they are, because it's very, very tough, isn't it, for people? So this evening we're going to explore uh, poetry, myth and imagination uh, and in relation to Bante and his teaching. And I'm going to do that partly by exploring Bante's character or aspects of his character and seeing how and why that informs his interest in poetry, myth, symbol and imagination. And that, for him, is still an unfolding process. So there's a great quote on the back of a book called In the Realm of the Lotus, which you may have come across. It's a conversation about art, beauty, and the spiritual life. And the interviewer, uh, Ollie Malander, says, Sangharakshita has a high reputation as a Buddhist scholar, prolific writer, and spiritual teacher, but he's also a visionary, a poet, a dreamer, a mountain gazer and a lover of art. And Bhante said himself just a few years ago, he said, I feel it's also important to have, so to speak, this magical element, not just in our lives generally, but especially in our spiritual lives, and its symbol, myth and ritual, which helps give life to this magical element. You might say imaginative element. So I don't know if I'm right and I'm open to being contradicted, Uh, But I have a sense that there isn't another modern Buddhist teacher who talks so much about the crucial part of imagination in our spiritual lives, in our Dharma lives. And I'm not saying that others don't explore the symbols of their culture or there aren't Buddhist artists, painters, poets or filmmakers. But it would seem to me that apart from Bhante or Lama Govinda, who Bhante called a kindred spirit, no one else has communicated the absolute necessity of the imagination in our Dharma lives. And it's not just that he writes poetry, is it, or loves art. He's communicated to us very, very fully from his own experience the absolute value of cultivating the imagination. He says it's the key to the spiritual life. So that's what I'm going to explore. But before I do that, I'm going to tell you the story of my first meeting with Sangharach. This is to get me warmed up a little bit. (laughs) And it's not a bad story, and uh, we all like stories, don't we, anyway? So I'd been calling myself a Buddhist for a few years before I met Bhante, and uh, I'd read the available books of the time. So this is uh, late 60s. I was 24. And the, the books that I read then were English translations of Tibetan texts. So I read things like uh, Tibet's Great Yoga, Melarepa, um, Tibet, Tibet, Tibetan Yoga and Secret Doctrines, which is a very odd book, uh, <laughs> Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation and the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So they were full of myth and symbol and imagination, and I loved them. And I was also very influenced by Carl Jung and you know, read quite a lot of Jung. And I'd also had my scientifically trained and atheistic mind rather blown apart by mind-altering substances. So it was interesting in all that kind of myth and symbolism and so on. Um, and I loved those books, but I, I kind of reached a brick wall with them because I couldn't work out how to put what they said into practice in my life, you know, in, in the conditions that I was in. I didn't really know what to do. And I knew I needed to meditate. Uh, I needed to sort of ground myself in some practice and I tried various things so I'd been to various strange teachers some of them Hindu (coughs) kind of on that side but wild (laughs) and I'd also been to the Buddhist society where everybody sat around on chairs very neatly in a circle and I thought that's not for me Uh, so I didn't really know what to do and uh, I took up Hatha Yoga I found a yoga class and um, I suppose it was synchronicity really but the yoga teacher turned out to be a member of the Tree Ratna Buddhist Order she didn't use her order name in the yoga class but one day 
she came in and said, uh, if anyone wants to go on a Buddhist retreat, I've got some booking forms. And I discovered later that her order name was Tara, which is my practice. So I went off with my then partner. So we went off on our little motorbike um, in a very snowy Easter to this country house in Surrey. And uh, people were very, very welcoming, very, very warm, and that you know, really had an effect on me. And there were people of all ages there. There, was, uh, some, there were some dear little old ladies who were sitting doing their knitting, which I really loved, and there were lots of people my age. So I felt very at home. And I learned to meditate, uh, which had an enormous effect on me. I mean, I learned the mindfulness of breathing and the metabhavana, I guess. And Banti wasn't there. I didn't really know who Sangharachita was, but he wasn't there. He was in America teaching a semester at Yale, so then one afternoon he just turned up. I think I'd been there a couple of days, and uh, he turned up. And uh, people were obviously very, very pleased to see him. He was very, very warm, very, very friendly. So he must have been around uh, mid-40s, 45. And he is the Bante of those early pictures that you see. I gather you had a film the other day mm-hmm. uh, showing Bante kind of giving talks. I don't know if it goes back that far to the 60s or 70s. But anyway, it's, you, you've seen pictures of Bante where he's got this long, lank, rather dirty, greasy hair. He's got these big kind of, what are they called, you know, things here. The, guy, the guys have <laughs> sideboards. Sideboards? Sideboards. <laughs> sideboards. <laughs> um, uh, glasses, not very good teeth. Quite bad teeth, actually. Um, a, a grubby orange robe. Uh, a maroon polo neck jumper, a shawl, slippers, I think. It was, it was Easter, it was cold. And a Tibetan mala. So, um, yes, <laughs> it's quite sort of fun. <laughs> and he was with uh, a young American man, and uh, they were talking uh, about what they'd been doing before they came back from the States. And they'd been in a commune in North America, which was called the Fantastic Umbrella Factory, watching the eclipse of the sun on the beach by a bonfire. So you can read about this in, in a paper called The Retrospective, which is on his website. You can read about that whole year in his life, 1970. It's very, very fascinating. So I was fascinated by this, this person. I mean, I, I knew enough about Buddhism to know what a Theravadan monk was supposed to look like. And it wasn't like this. <laughs> they were supposed to be very clean robes, you know, one shoulder bare and a bald head and very... Well, not only he wasn't mindful, but mindful in a particular kind of way. And he was English. Um, and he seemed to, uh, he just seemed to be very relaxed himself and very much on the wavelengths of the people around him. And I just thought he, he's very, very hard to pigeonhole. I mean, I think he still is very, very hard to pigeonhole in any way or categorise. And that evening there was a, on the programme it said there was going to be a lecture. So I thought we'd go into the shrine room and Bante would give a lecture, give a talk. Um, but when I got into the shrine room, there was, uh, he was sitting on a chair, you know, ordinary chair, next to a reel-to-reel tape recorder on the ground. Some of you won't know what that is, a (laughs) reel-to-reel tape recorder, you won't know. But anyway, a bit of old technology. (laughs) And um, so out of this tape recorder came a lecture from the Eightfold Path series. I can't remember which one. And I thought, well, it's obviously pragmatic to play a tape. He's got the tape. He's just come back from the States. But he sat next to this tape recorder, listening to his own talk and laughing at all his own jokes. (laughs) (laughs) So I was very kind of captivated and fascinated and sort of slightly endeared, I think, with this person I couldn't categorise. But something very, very profound happened to me listening to that lecture. So it was a lecture coming out of a tape recorder, but I knew it was you know, his voice and it was coming from, from Bante. And it just struck a very, very deep chord in me. It had a very, very strong resonance with what he was saying. It was so clear and so accessible. I think after all the kind of rather wacky Tibetan stuff I'd been reading. This is what I was looking for, someone who could explain things to me with clarity. At the same time, it came from such depth and was so profound. And I had the very strange uh, experience at the time that almost as though I knew already what he was saying, which of course I didn't. And I knew what he was going to say before he said it, which of course I didn't. But I think that just expresses the kind of depth of the, of the resonance, actually, uh, how deeply it struck me. So I think I met the Dharma's truth on that occasion uh, through that tape, through Bante. So that was a very, and still is a very sort of pivotal experience for me, under, underpins everything, as it were. And, you know, one has ups and downs in life, in the movement, in, even in my relationship with Bante. But some, there's something, that, what happened then has just uh, stayed with me, and I'm still here, I think, because of it. So that first encounter was uh, consolidated and confirmed later in my ordination, a few years later.
So yes, I want to uh, continue to explore aspects of Bante's character. So it, it, just there, because you've got kind of, he's fascinating, he's a bit mysterious, you can't pigeonhole him. There's this sense of profundity and depth. At the same time, what he says is incredibly clear and incredibly accessible. So Bante says of himself, and I'm sure uh, you've all come across Bante talking about himself in this way, he says when he was uh, young, um, a young practitioner, he talks about this in The Rainbow Road, I think, he had an experience of himself as having two aspects which were in conflict, which he calls Sangharachta 1 and Sangharachta 2. So he says that Sangharachta 1, he calls him the more religious-minded aspect, as it were, even ascetic. So this aspect wanted to realise the truth, to read and write philosophy, to observe the precepts, to get up early, to meditate, even to mortify the flesh. He does say that, to mortify the flesh, to be an ascetic, to fast and to pray. And Sangharachta too was the more aesthetic aspect, who was interested in the arts, wanted to enjoy the beauty of nature, to read and write poetry, to listen to music, to look at paintings, sculpture, to experience emotions, to lie in bed and dream, to see places and meet people. So I'm sure we can recognise aspects of both those Sangharachtas in ourselves, and maybe we have some experience of those aspects or similar aspects being in conflict. But he says in the early days they were in extreme conflict, and he thought he had to give up one for the other. So in his wandering days, he says Sangharachta I, who's the ascetic, uh, ruled unchallenged, and Sangharachta II, the poet, the poet, was denied, and in fact would have died had he not met a Swami who encouraged him that poetry was not incompatible with the spiritual life. So it's very, very strong. Uh, you can just get the sense of what he was kind of struggling with, can't you? And he says, well, what they needed to do was marry and give birth to Sangharachta III, <laughs> who would have united beauty and truth, poetry and philosophy, spontaneity and discipline. But this seemed a dream impossible of fulfilment. So he didn't think that that was going to be easy. And he says one day there was a sort of violent clash between them. Um, so Sangharachta I, the ascetic, is really, really, really fed up with Sangharachta II because Sangharachta II is reading lots and lots of poetry and actually he's writing a very, very long poem. So that's what he's doing. And this other aspect, which is kind of, you know, got to get on with the spiritual life in a certain kind of way, just gets really frustrated with that. And he burns all the notebooks, all Bante's poetry that he'd written up until that point. He just burns it. So it's very strong, isn't it, that he just tosses all that... This particular aspect tosses all that stuff on the fire. And then he says... Well, you know, he was in kind of shock having done that because it was, you know, it was done, wasn't it? What's done is done. Later on, he says, uh, yeah, after that, I think, I think the beginning of some integration starts to happen. And uh, he's in Kalimpong at this time and he's, uh, he starts to teach uh, some students. He starts to teach them English literature and he starts to teach them poetry. And I think it's Shelley that he's teaching. And... uh, he just has a realisation that in communicating the great poets and communicating Shelley, and great poets often talk a lot about impermanence, don't they? Uh, he says, the greatest poetry touches the human heart and begins to meet the Dharma. So there's a beginning of a fusion of these uh, aspects of himself. Later on, in a conversation with Nagabodhi, he says, well, in a way, Sangharachta and Sangharachta Sangharach one and Sangharachta two are like a yin-yang symbol. So, you know, the the, the yin yang symbol it's half black half white but the black half has a white dot in and the white half has a black dot in uh, there's a bit of one in the other so there's already a process of integration taking place they interact and he says in this conversation I think this is really really interesting that the dialectic creative tension and interaction between those two aspects uh, is, what, is what's created Tri Ratna, is what's created our community. So that's very, very interesting, isn't it? We are also multifaceted. Uh, we encourage study, understanding, clarity, discipline, effort, but we also encourage creativity, the arts, poetry, ritual, symbol, myth, and imagination. So we come out of that, as it were, our community, the way it is, partly emerges from that kind of extreme conflict that Bante worked with. And it was an extreme conflict. It wasn't, wasn't that he just wanted to write, write the odd poem and then meditate a bit. It's not like that, is it? It's, it's obviously kind of both sides are very, very strong in him. So he does write a poem about this. It's quite a sweet little poem, actually. It's the only poem I'm going to read of his in, in the talk. Um, it's from the Complete Poems, and it's called Lines. I questioned in my greener age whether it was best for me to blossom poet or virgin sage. 
But now in riper days I see, and with what gladness know it, the poet is the sweetest sage, the sage the sweetest poet. The piper his own best tune, and laugh that I could ever have striven thus to sever the moonlight from the moon. I'll read that, just read that again. I questioned in my greener age whether it were best for me to blossom poet or virgin sage. But now in riper days I see, and with what gladness know it, the poet is the truest sage, the sage the sweetest poet, the piper his own best tune, and laugh that I could ever have striven thus to sever the moonlight from the moon. So much later on uh, in a conversation that's called The Conversation, he talks about some of his other qualities, um, characteristics. And again, we can see how different some of them are from each other and how they could be in conflict, but how they seem to have been integrated into a very rich individual with many facets. So he says that he likes to explore any interest that he has very, very thoroughly. He just really, really, really goes into it. Uh, he might, if it's um, a work of art, he might read all about, he might be the biography of the artist, etc. Et so he reads a lot and then he reflects very, very deeply. So he's, he likes to explore things very, very thoroughly. And then he says he has a very strong empathy for whatever work of, heart, of art he's engaged with and strong powers of absorption. So he says that he, yeah, he just kind of almost enters the world of the poem or the work of art or the mind of the artist. I, mean, I think he writes about reading uh, Paradise Lost and feeling like he's almost in the mind of Milton, as it were. So very, very strong uh, empathic uh, capacity uh, to enjoy those things. And he says that his critical faculty is suspended at that point. That comes in later. He says, I think one has to have this imaginative empathy first before the critical faculties come into play if one is really to appreciate a work of art and to evaluate it deeply. I, I can identify imaginatively, but when I'm not doing that, my critical faculties are very much at work. This may account for certain contradictions in some of the things I've said at different times. <laughs> it's quite interesting, it's quite illuminating. It depends whether I've made those statements at the time of empathic engagement or at the time of later critical appraisal. And I think this is often true in his um, dealings with people. Uh, I think when he's meeting someone one-on-one, -on -one, he's in that highly empathic uh, uh, communication. Um, and then sometimes later, I think he thinks a little bit more about maybe some of the principles of what's been said and he often then asks someone else can you just go and follow up with so and so <laughs> that there's also this aspect to whatever it is they want to do so that, sometimes that can feel a little bit confusing but you can understand uh, how that happens he also says he has a great capacity to analyse he's very keen on words, dictionaries, meanings and etymologies and we know that he's almost pedantic sometimes those of us who know pedantic <laughs> Uh, and yet he's got a great capacity to synthesize. And uh, I think the survey of Buddhism is a work that kind of brings a lot of those aspects together. It's, um, you know, if you, if you run the survey of Buddhism, if you've read it, if you run it through um, a reading test, a reading index, you know, where you take 100 words and you find out how many sentences that 100 words have got, usually it's two in the survey. <laughs> Sorry, <buddy. laughs> And you do something with a number of words over three syllables that don't end in ED, and you get a kind of scale that comes from, starts at six and ends at sort of 29 or something. It's, it's very high. So it's a, it's a, it's a challenging read uh, in that way, and it's very carefully thought through, and every word is kind of thought about. And yet there's some very poetic prose in it, and you know, lots of poetry and quotes from the scriptures and uh, it's, it is synthetic of the Dharma on a very deep level, he brings together um, what's really really crucial in the Dharma so yeah he's a complex multifaceted human being and it's in, I just think it's very interesting that he says that from this creative tension has emerged the Tree Ratna community so I'd like to explore some of his teachings and communications to us that I think emerge from this experience and also some of his teachings that I found helpful. So one of, the, one of the things that I found helpful is that in several places he talks about the value of creative tension and often we don't want to be tense, we want to relax and you know, that's important. But yeah, he's told us that creative tension is very, very important and he says at the highest level of creative tension, that gives birth to bodhicitta, that non-ego extreme of spiritual energy. And he explores creative tension both in the survey and in the Bodhisattva Ideal series of lectures. If you've, if you've come across the Bodhisattva Ideal, you know that he explores the six perfections, 
generosity and ethics, patience and energy, meditation and wisdom, as actually pairs of opposites which are in creative tension. So he says, when there's a breakthrough from one level of spiritual experience to another, it's generally the result of a painful dilemma, some problem that can't be solved intellectually like the Zen koan. The Bodhisattva is a living contradiction. I always find that kind of, I don't know, <laughs> exciting. The Bodhisattva is a living contradiction. So we can be living contradictions. Uh, you know, we don't have to have everything kind of simple, as it were. A living union of opposites at the highest possible level, which cannot be expressed conceptually. So he says, contradictions tend to present themselves to us as existential dilemmas. Usually our conscious strategy is to be aware of one side and suppress the other. But sooner or later we're compelled to take both sides into consideration at once. So yes, yeah, so if, if we're sort of torn in some way, often that, that's our strategy, isn't it? To kind of give up that and go with this. Um, and he's saying, well, that's not going to work, I guess, because we'll give up one and then the other one will rise up anyway. And he also says we don't really need uh, traditional koans. You know, the traditional koans, like how do you get the goose out of the bottle and things like that. We don't need those kind of traditional koans. Existential dilemmas arise out of our life and practice. So there's all sorts of things happening in our lives, aren't they, which pull us in, in different directions. So, yeah, one example of that with me, which Shatara Vandana mentioned, is, is I just become a public preceptor in 1998, so I had a, suddenly had a lot more responsibility and I needed to travel a lot more and be lots of different places. And at the same time, my mum, who was also not very well, she got a, a, a lot worse. So I just found myself in this situation where I wanted to do both. I didn't want to give up one for the other. I wanted to you know, help women get ordained and do all that side. And I wanted to help my mum and look after her. And she lived on her own. <coughs> and I was the only child you know, in, in the country, as it were. So that was um, challenging. Yeah, I, 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 sometimes I felt like I needed to be in two, two places at the same time. Um, but also there was kind of pulls of, of duty, I guess, you know, very deep responsibilities that I felt very deeply. And uh, I think I just had to stay with that tension as much as I could and try and find a place deeper uh, than those pulls where, in a way where there wasn't a contradiction in doing either of those things, which I think at times I managed to do. And I remember talking to Bounty about us, saying, you know, it was how hard it was, and he said... Something like, and he said quite a lot of things, but what the thing I remember, the pithy thing I remember, is he said, uh, it's about being a good Buddhist and a good daughter. And they're not mutually exclusive. So, yeah, <laughs> one example of my life of being in creative tension. There are many others. <laughs> and another teaching, which I think follows on from this of Bantis, I'm not sure if this was ever recorded. It may be an esoteric teaching, but it took place on an order convention uh, many years ago. And on that convention, a buyer was giving a talk on Buddhism and Keats. Ratnaguna might remember. <laughs> and uh, a buyer was fortunate, or unfortunate enough, <laughs> to be introduced and summed up by Bante, because Bante is a hard act to follow if he's introducing you. And then a buyer gave this wonderful <coughs> talk on Buddhism and Keats, and then Bante stood up and summed it up and gave really what was another talk <laughs> afterwards, which uh, must have been hard for a buyer. So what he said was, I suppose, yeah, you've got Buddhism and Keats. So what he did was he used that um, phrase from E.M. Forster, only connect. So this is from a book by E.M. Forster called Howard's End, and it's mentioned several times uh, in that book by one of the characters. She uses it in different ways. But it's become a kind of motto, I think. I think Margaret says you need to connect the prose and the passion, dot, 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 and live in fragments no longer. That's one of the quotes. So he sort of just used that phrase as a kind of motto, only connect. And what he was saying was, um, trying to make a point about our spiritual lives, that when we first come along and meet the Dharma, I guess particularly if we're young and idealistic, it may happen later, <laughs> we're old and idealistic, <laughs> is that, you know, that we're kind of so enthused by the Dharma, uh, we can't quite see how all the other aspects of our life fit in with, with, with that, with, with spiritual practice. <laughs> so sometimes we think we just have to shed everything, have to give everything up. And I, I remember when I was young doing that, you know, giving everything away, giving all my records away, wanting to be a nun, trying to be a nun, thinking I'm going to be a nun forever, you know, so, so on and so forth. I was 24, it didn't happen like, quite like that. Um, <laughs> so he said, well, you could do that, but what would happen, you'd, you'd end up with quite a narrow individuality. You, you'd have um, 
undertaken what he called a premature synthesis in, in your life. Whereas if we gave things time and we were patient and we waited to see how our interests and passions and different things uh, in our life, how they did fit in with our spiritual life, and that, that might take quite a long time. If we waited and we integrated those uh, passions, interests into our life, into our mandala, he talked about a, a mandala, then we'd have uh, a much richer individuality. Well, some things, I guess, you know, as you kind of deepen your practice, you probably realise that they're going to fall off the edge of your mandala of practice, but some things going to find their place. And I think he meant well, things like interest in, in the arts in various ways. It's easier to be narrow in some ways, isn't it? It's going to simpler, it's less bother, it's less confusing perhaps to just kind of be narrow. But, um, yeah, he says, well, we'd feel impoverished. And I guess we'd also have a reaction at some point and... Uh, perhaps fluctuate to some kind of indulgence. So I, f- I just found that, I remember that in him talking out and finding that very, very helpful, that just that sense that, yeah, you can embrace the spiritual life, uh, the Dharma can meet and embrace a lot of different aspects of our life and interests. And we are complex beings, so that's good, isn't it? Uh, so a little bit more about Bante. Um, so we're back in Kalimpong. And uh, one of the things he did in Kalimpong was he immersed himself in the study, reading and study and reflection on the great Mahayana sutras, which are full of parable and myth and symbol. Uh, And he says, um, I guess again you've got his great capacity for empathy. He says he studied and reflected on these great texts and he was so deeply absorbed that he experienced flash upon flash of insights. I think he gained a very, very deep understanding of those sutras. And we're just very, very fortunate that he chose to communicate uh, some of his vision and inspiration in his lecture series on those great sutras. So we've got lecture series on the White Lotus Sutra, the Sutra of Golden Light, the Vimalakirti Nadesha, creative symbols of the Tantric Path to Enlightenment, for example. And I was fortunate to be at most of those lecture series, to be at them live, which was quite an experience. And uh, I remember particularly the Vimalakirti Nadesha lecture series, which was in 1977. Um, where Bhante sort of unfolded that sutra, which if you just read it, you wouldn't know what was going on. <laughs> you just wouldn't have a clue, I don't think. Um, so this lecture series, eight weeks, and you could sort of tell that he was in a completely inspired state of mind, you know, writing the lectures, reflecting on them, and then coming and giving them. And uh, quite a large audience in, in the venue that we had, and uh, just extraordinary experience of just being kind of lifted up into this world of myth and symbol and imagination. Some friends of mine lived in uh, South London at the time and they would come up by van and they said that every week after the lecture they got lost on the way home because they were just (laughs) not in a normal space. (laughs) So, yeah, Bantu just continues to explore with his reading, his writing, his reflection, his love of art and music and friendship, meditation and reflection, this whole dimension of the imagination and symbols and myths. And this is a creative unfolding process. It's not finished. I don't think it ever can be finished. I'm sure it's continuing to unfold in his life even now. So a bit later on, we're back in, now we're in the 80s, <laughs> uh, there's a series of retreats in Tuscany, ordination retreats in Tuscany for men. Uh, later on, we also use Tuscany for ordination retreats for women. So Banti was present on these retreats and... Uh, Tuscany is in Italy and people travelled and looked at art on their way to Il Convento in, in Tuscany. So he, he starts to communicate some of his experience of that unfolding faculty of imagination in relation to Western art. And the essays that he wrote, you can tell if you read them, Journey to Il Convento and St. Jerome Revisited. I mean, they were given on that retreat, but uh, they're also in written form. They just have a sense of inspiration, of something really wonderful unfolding that, that, that enable you to kind of understand uh, archetype, myth and symbol much more deeply. So those essays encourage us to engage with notice and nurture this faculty of imagination and to allow ourselves to respond, like understanding that some of the images we encounter will be cultural expressions of universal archetypes. So obviously if you're travelling in Italy, a lot of the symbols and paintings that you see are Christian symbols. But nevertheless, we can touch the meaning and value, as it were, of the archetype. If, if it's, uh, if it's uh, 
particularly good piece of art. I think it leads to something deeper. It doesn't matter that it's a Madonna and child, as it were. Uh, they express something more. So they're kind of transparent, as it were, to you know, transcendental. So again, I found that very, very helpful. So uh, I went to a high Ang- Anglican school when I was young, and it was full of crucifixes and Mary chapels and so on. And in my early teens, I rejected Christianity very strongly. I became a militant atheist, and I particularly rejected the Blessed Virgin Mary, who I saw as a symbol of the oppression of women. So I didn't want anything to do with her. <laughs> so and I remember talking about that with Banty and him being slightly, slightly puzzled, I guess because he had this other you know, experience of beautiful paintings of, of the Madonna and, and not feeling that way. But I think through those essays and through Bante's unfolding of the imagination, I, I kind of learnt, uh, yeah, that, that you can... The cultural context isn't everything, as it were. And some of the Madonna images and paintings express something of universal meaning. So I uh, particularly love the version of the sorrows in the Valencian Cathedral. I don't know if you've ever been to... Valencia is a beautiful cathedral and the, the Virgin of the Sorrows has her own chapel and I've been to Valencia lots of times, I've got friends there, there's a centre there and I just wandered in there one day I guess and uh, it's a small chapel, it's a beautiful image, it's very big and she's surrounded by lots of Baroque gold and lots of flowers and she's always kind of got lots of beautiful white flowers and she's kind of holding Jesus the baby and she's looking down and uh, I just, I don't know what happened. I was just kind of electrified by this image. And whenever I go to Valencia, I always go and see the Virgin. And I'm moved to tears. Sometimes, you know, there's not many people in the chapel. Sometimes it's kind of full and uh, there's a service going on. There's, you know, angelic choirs and the priest and everybody's going Santa Maria, Santa Maria, because they're very devoted in Spain. And I'm sort of there, the Buddhist, kind of weeping in the background. You know, you know, there you go. You can't really explain it, can you? You just have to sort of experience that. And I went um, one time with someone that I'd ordained and I came out and I said to her, it's all right, I'm not going to become a Roman Catholic. That's not what it's about. Yeah. So something about that image, that symbol, that statue, uh, I resonate with. So it's a symbol for me. I'm going to come back to that later. Something has to be a symbol for you. So Banty's encouraged us to engage with this imaginal faculty, the key to the spiritual life. Um, It's hard to sort of define the imaginal faculty. In a way, you can't define anything in this area. It's the realm of undefined meanings. You can't define myth. You can't define symbol. You can't really define the imagination. If you start to kind of try and define it and categorise it, explain it in concepts you've kind of lost it but you know we have to try to some extent i guess you could say it's a way of seeing a way of knowing the way um bante describes it is a it's a faculty that uh, to begin with is a faculty that then it becomes kind of like the whole of you it's a synthesis of reason and emotion shraddha and pranya so it unifies all our faculties it's unifying integrating and transformative so one of Bhante's great characteristics, I think, is he's always asked himself, why is the Buddha saying this? He doesn't take things for granted. Why is the Buddha saying this? What does it mean? What does it mean for me? What is the teaching trying to do? So one of the things he said about what is the teaching trying to do is that it's trying to communicate what we can only describe as the mystery of the Buddha's enlightenment, to give us you know, a hint, a glimpse, a glimpse of a glimpse, us yet enlightened folk so that we can actually respond, resonate, participate uh, to some degree in that enlightened, awakened mind. And he says to do that, the teaching needs to speak to the whole of us. So he's talked to us about the fact that the Dharma speaks two languages. So it communicates in the language of concepts. It does that very, very clearly. It communicates to the head, uh, it communicates the rational mind to the surface via concepts, reason, metaphysics, etc. But he also says this does not exhaust the whole of life's mysteries. So the teaching also needs to communicate to the heart, to the unconscious mind, to our unplumbed depths in the language of myth. And that this is an equally valid, if not, you could say, more important language, powerful language. It speaks with the help of symbols and myth and legend and metaphor and simile, symbolic ritual, poetry, parable, art, dreams, fairy tales, epic drama and stories. And all of that communicates valid spiritual truths about life, about human nature and about the Dharma. 
And he says it gives us a sense of what he calls mythic continuity, as though there's a kind of underground river of images that's always present to us if we can kind of drop out of the rational mind. I think it was James Hillman who said that essentially we are mythopoetic beings. Hmm. So Bounty is always communicated to us in both of those languages. Um, he values clear thinking very, very much, and he thinks we should clarify our views and our thinking. We should engage with our intellects as much as possible and as far as possible and stretch ourselves as far as possible. But he also understands we're not transformed by concepts alone. And we need to be aware of a purely ap- academic or what he calls rationalistic approach. He says it's better to have a bit of superstition than too much rationalism, which he likens to a sterile garden in which nothing grows. And he also warns us against literalism. Often, often, often he warns us against literalism. He said um, that many of the questions he was asked on seminars, he, he led many seminars in the 80s, 90s, and the question and answer sessions he had, he could sense, or he knew, the questions were based on literalism. And if the people had understood this, they wouldn't have asked the question. <laughs> and uh, if you've ever been in a question-answer session with Bantu on seminar with or studying with him, and he wants you to ask questions, it's very, very challenging to come up with a question that is well-formulated, is deep enough you know, to kind of meet, uh, to meet the man, as it were. And I've seen Bante deconstruct people's questions, deconstruct their assumptions uh, with his uh, Manjushri sword, it's quite humiliating. <laughs> I had it done to myself. I remember one person asking him a, a kind of triple-barreled question. I won't tell you what it was about, but anyway. <laughs> and uh, so Bounty sort of took it apart, took all the assumptions apart, part one. And, uh, and then he said, uh, there was more to the question. The person was going, no, 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 that's fine. No, 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 it's fine. That's fine. <laughs> no, 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 there were two more parts of the question. So, you know, the whole thing got done. So it's a learning experience, isn't it, to kind of see uh, how shallow our thinking can be and how literalistic we are. And he would do it in the kindest possible way. So even quite recently, I went to see him, uh, I think it was uh, December, and we were having an Anagarika convention at Adistana, and uh, I was co-leading it, and I went to see him before it, and uh, he said, well, what sort of things are you going to... He, he wanted this Anagarika convention very much to happen, so he wanted to know what we were going to do, what we were going to talk about, what we were going to discuss. And people had sent in things uh, in emails about... Well, some of them were about, well, I'm a bad Anagarika because I've got a car, you know, things like that, <laughs> or something you know, about the simple life. I said, oh, well, I'm sure we'll talk about the simple life, and people will say that they're not really doing it. And he said, oh, <laughs> people want to pin things down too much. They want to get it right. They want to have rules. It's not really like that. So, you know, even now he's warning us against literalism. It's, it's a big hindrance. It means if we're too literalistic, we think we know something. And then, of course, we set limits on our understanding and our growth. We go through the motions. It's one of those fetters, isn't it? We don't touch the deeper aspects of ourself. It closes our experience down. And there's also this thing about wanting to get it right and know the rules. So the language of myth and symbol, uh, the language of undefined meaning, on the other hand, allows our experience to be much more fluid, complex, open, paradoxical, subtle and multidimensional. So it gives us a creative space in which new symbols and experiences can arise. So the question is, I guess, how do we cultivate our nascent faculty of imagination? And Bounty and others can make suggestions, but in a way, I think, ultimately, we have to find our own way. So after the paper on reimagining the Buddha emerged, I was uh, at a college meeting, and uh, lots of people were going to see Bante one-on-one, and I think most people asked him, how do I engage with the imagination? And I think he said the same thing to everybody. And at the end, we were having dinner with him, and the same question arose. How do we engage with the imagination? He said, do nothing. Do nothing. But given it was a gathering of public preceptors, he said, do nothing, but not for too long. (laughs) Too many responsibilities. It's got a good sense of (laughs) humour. So it's very important, isn't it, to do nothing. You can't um, do imagination in the same way as that we do other things. You just can't do it. And that's, we, we want to think, well, how, how do we do it? You know, I, need, I need to know, I need to get it right. Uh, so do nothing, I think, is perplexing to us, isn't it? And we have to just sort of get out of the way to get into another space where we're not involved in lists or targets. We live in such a target-based society, don't we? Deadlines, results, you know, that, all that's going to kind of go, hasn't it? You've got to let all that go and have some sort of creative space where you actually do 
nothing. And that doesn't mean um, you're doing nothing, but you're kind of <laughs> playing with your iPhone or, I don't know, the things that we do when we think we're doing nothing. <laughs> I don't know if you remember the story about Bante and the French nun that he writes about in his uh, memoirs. There's a French nun who um, comes to him for advice, isn't there? And she's always doing something. She's, you know, she's very active. She's always, he says, she's putting out the washing and taking it in. She's doing this, she's doing that. And she feels stuck in her spiritual life. And she says, what do I need to do? And he says, you need to waste time. Of course, she's absolutely horrified. So it's quite hard, isn't it, in our modern, it's very fast uh, life, isn't it, these days, multitasking. <coughs> it's very hard to sort of stand still and do nothing in the speed of modern life. But that's what we need to do. We need to do nothing, be patient, be open, be receptive. It's very hard. <laughs> the will wants to kind of come in, doesn't it, and uh, direct us. So one of Granty's great teachings about this is the greater mandala of aesthetic appreciation. All these things I'm saying are probably well, well known to, to most of you, but they kind of hang together in a thread, I think. So he gave a teaching called the greater mandala of aesthetic appreciation or the greater mandala of uselessness as another way of counteracting a too intellectual approach to the Dharma. He says, well, the Buddha saw the world with warmth, with feeling. He saw the world as being completely pure, completely beautiful. He saw everything with compassion, with appreciation. And that's, in a way, how we need to see the world. So he encouraged us to live what he called in this greater mandala of aesthetic appreciation, seeing everything as beautiful rather than useful or utilitarian. I think the speedy world where you're not doing nothing is, is a world of, uh, of use, isn't it, and purpose. We're trying to use things. So to, give, to let, all, let go of all that and live in this kind of greater space um, where we take delight in things, where we appreciate, where we enjoy, where we relish, where we feel for. And he says that transforms our Dharma life into a life of play or lila. Everything is play, everything is spontaneous, everything is natural. And play, if you see children play, it doesn't really have a purpose or a goal, does it? I was talking to Tara Vandana earlier about laughter. Laughter yoga, laughter therapy? Sounds great. <laughs> you just laugh. <laughs> so we need to laugh, don't we? We can be so serious about our spiritual life. And yes, we know we need to be serious and committed and so on, but it needs to be within this kind of enjoyment. The enjoyment factor needs to be there, as it were. So all the practical things of life need to be in, 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 within that much greater mandala. And this he says, uh, well, the Bodhisattva is the greatest worker, but all his activity or her activity is permeated by appreciative awareness. So again, the Bodhisattva is a living contradiction. And he also says when he's uh, talking about the greater mandala um, that we need to be just purely ornamental. We're not, we're not here on the planet to be useful, you know, to sort of, you know, we can type at 60 words a minute or something. You know, we just, just be, just be yourself, enjoy being yourself, enjoy being who you are. It's quite difficult for us, isn't it, to, to do that, but uh, time and patience and play, lots of play helps. <laughs> so to do that, to live in the greater mandala of uh, aesthetic appreciation or uselessness, great, isn't it, to live in the greater mandala of uselessness where, you know, you're not kind of bothered about things being useful or targets or goals. We need to cultivate spiritual receptivity. So sensitivity, responsiveness, openness. And Bhante in his latest paper, uh, Reimagining the Buddha, suggests that we cultivate that in relationship to nature, to art in all its forms, to symbol and myth, and then to the Buddha himself. So we're trying to cultivate this kind of faculty of imagination, of connection, of empathy, of resonance. Uh, through those ways. And he said we need to respond to the natural world as alive. He makes a, a statement in his book, Living with Awareness, that I think needs quite a lot of reflection. I'm, I'm just going to tell you what it is. I'm not going to uh, unpack it. But he says that a universe conceived of as dead cannot be a universe in which one stands any chance of attaining enlightenment. So a universe conceived of as dead cannot be a universe in which one stands any chance of attaining enlightenment. So that is something to reflect upon. So he suggests we, you know, we respond to the natural world as alive. Somewhere else he says, I, this, I like this better, I think. <laughs> At the very least, animists have more fun. <laughs> so trying to see the natural world as kind of full of energy, full of life, rather than as kind of dead matter. So then he encouraged us to be sensitive to various forms of art. 
Now, I think it's important not to become too precious about art. It's possible to become precious, isn't it, about art? I think that defeats the purpose. I think we used to be more like this in, in the early days. I mean, we were trying to sort of... Um, I wrote a book called The Religion of Art. We were trying to sort of put that into practice. I remember going to a Buddha day, and rather than one of our wonderful interactive pantomimes, there was this sort of string quartet playing. And I just couldn't... It didn't really... To me, it didn't, I couldn't connect with that. And I remember being quite young and being on a solitary retreat, and I, all I took with me was The Religion of Art. If you read The Religion of Art, it was a very idealistic book. So I had The Religion of Art with me, and I was thinking, I'm never going to read another trashy novel. I'm never going to go and read a trashy film. I'm never going to read a newspaper again, you know, etc., etc., etc. I'm just going to live in this world of The Religion of Art. And then I got a bit poorly got cold or something, and I just wanted to go to bed, get under the duvet, and I thought, oh, I wish I had a trashy novel. <laughs> so wish I had a trashy novel. <laughs> Luckily, <laughs> although I only had one book with me, there were two caravans on this solitary site, and I had the key to the other one. I thought, I wonder if X in her caravan. I'll just go and have a look, you know, straggling over my nose streaming. And lo and behold, <laughs> in her cupboard, <laughs> there were several volumes of a... Uh, Cornish saga called Poldark. <laughs> it was on the telly as well, wasn't it? I was blissfully happy. I was happy. And the duvet with my toast and my tea and Poldark. So I learned something about myself <laughs> on that occasion. <laughs> Don't be too precious. Just make connections. Start where you are. Make connections where you can. And I remember, again, it was some years ago, Maitreya Bandhu, who's a teacher at the London Buddhist Centre, you might know him. He's a very, very good teacher. He's very, very funny. He's also a very good poet and a very good artist. But he used to lead courses on the religion of art in those days. And I remember him saying to me once, oh, he said, Dharma Dinner, week three, I just get them, they're all sitting around, I get them to all chant, I've got a bottom, I've got a bottom. <laughs> So that they're not too kind of up in their heads. They're kind of on the chair. So while it's very important, you know, to be open to art in all its wonderful forms, let's not get too pressure. Otherwise you just lose the play aspect, don't you, the Leela aspect. (laughs) So we also need to be receptive to symbols. Um, So again, symbols are impossible to define really or explain. They speak for themselves they're multidimensional, they mean different things at different times. So for a symbol to be a symbol, it has to be a symbol for you. It has to speak to you. You have to be touched by whatever it is that you've encountered. Work of, work of literature or art or nature or a statue or a friend or a book or, or whatever. I mean, like the Virgin uh, in the Valencian Cathedral that spoke to me. I don't really know why. I, could, I can sort of work it out a little bit, but in a way I don't need to. I just need to have that experience and let that experience lead me to other encounters with other symbols. So, yeah, we need to be open and receptive to symbols. And, uh, again, uh, people say to Bounty, well, where should we look? (laughs) And he says, well, look in your own imagination. But we can also look in the realm of myth and dream and film and poetry and and whatever. Dreams are very interesting, aren't they? Because dreams kind of plug us in to that kind of underground river of images. And while it might be interesting to look things up in a dictionary of symbols, I've got a wonderful dictionary of symbols at home, or look in a book for what a dream might mean, uh, it's not really a matter, is it, of working out those kind of correspondences. It really has to resonate for you. What does it mean for you in the context in which you encountered that symbol? So, yeah, he says, Bhante says, symbols can't be constructed, borrowed, or manufactured by the rational mind. So in the same way that he's encouraged us to cultivate spiritual receptivity, to live in this greater mandala of aesthetic appreciation, to be responsive to nature and art and symbol, he's also encouraged us more recently to be open to the Buddha, to reimagine the Buddha. It's quite a project that he's kind of encouraged us to to, uh, take part in. It's a gift really, isn't it? He says to live the Buddhist life, to become like the Buddha, we must imagine the Buddha. The goal must be embodied in our imaginations, our deepest energies gathered in an image of what we are trying to move towards. So the Buddha needs to be a symbol for us. It needs to touch us. It needs to shake us, move us, resonate with us. Uh, And he says also, well, do the images, the traditional images of Buddhism, Bodhisattvas, do they touch you? Well, some of them might do, some of them might not. They don't... They don't, just because it's an image of a bodhisattva, it doesn't mean it's a symbol for you, as it were. 
So we need to rediscover, discover or rediscover the image of the Buddha within our own minds and imaginations and our hearts, yeah, in a way that really affects us with our whole being. So we need to go beyond the traditional forms and to connect with our feeling for the historical Buddha. Again, I think connecting with the historical Buddha is an act of imagination for us because he's not present now. Uh, and our feeling for the enlightened mind and find how does that resonate for you? Find out whatever way appears for you. So it might be a visual image within. It might be a presence. It might be a felt sense. And it'll be different on different occasions. There's no kind of one answer to that question, is there? But it'll be part of that underground river of images with that sense of continuity and unfolding. And I think it's not just kind of imagination. It's not just having a visual image. It's not just having... A, even a sense is it's kind of what happens when a symbol the symbol of the buddha is really alive for you that it comes a lot of feeling you touch very deep feelings of resonance of uh, respect of appreciation of love of devotion of shraddha so all that's part of how we reimagine the buddha and it's up to us to do this this is what Bhante said it's up to us to do this so we're already engaged on this process and i'm sure uh, you know the buddha has become more alive to us through this so the early Buddhists who imagined the Buddha did so by giving birth to a symbol within themselves and that Buddha was both an embodied human being whom they called to mind and it was at the same time the living truth so if you think of Pingya's uh, story about being far from the Buddha, too old to go and see the Buddha but he kind of brought the Buddha to mind didn't he, very very fully, very very creatively so that he felt he was never apart from the Buddha, so that Buddha based on the Buddha, he probably met him at some point, but then becomes, doesn't it, a symbol for him, a symbol within, with all that kind of devotion, and in that way he becomes liberated. So Sangharach has invited us to consider imagination as the key to the spiritual life, and to consider the practice of imagining the Buddha as the way to connect with our goal. So I've given you some glimpses into Vanti's character and his deep connection with the imaginal faculty which is unfolded through his life and which is communicated to us so fully and richly. I'm going to just finish with the quote I read earlier. I feel it's also important to have, so to speak, this magical element, not just in our lives generally, but especially in our spiritual lives. And it is symbol, myth and ritual which helps give life to this magical element, you might say this imaginative element. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.